fall for that ministry of music. Another date we'd like you to keep in mind is July the 18th. Uh, Pastor Tim Zuck, a son of our church, is going to be ministering the word of God to us on uh, July 18th in the evening. So it'll be a great night to uh, hear from uh, uh, Pastor Zuck. So we hope that you'll, you'll come and uh, be a part of that wonderful time. Now what? When one prolonged experience comes to the end, the tendency is to say, now what? We've been in the book of John for a little over a year and a half. So, now what? Uh, today brings this book to a close. My last uh, message from the book of John, so now what? Well, now Philippians. That's where I tend to go next. And trust that uh, you'll enjoy hearing the word of God from the book of Philippians. As we come to the close of the book of John, let me remind you that the disciples were with Jesus for just over three years. Now, that's a very short period of time. And I think we we tend to lose sight of that, especially when we think of the disciples' understanding. Three years, just a little over three years. Put it in perspective We've been in the book of John just over a year and a half. So, half of the amount of time that the disciples would have been with Jesus, we've been in the book of John. Uh, I am presently serving in my 27th year of ministry in this church. That is nine times longer than Jesus' public earthly ministry. Nine times longer than Jesus' entire earthly public ministry. But the end of this three-year period is significant. There are going to be a lot of changes. Jesus died and rose again. He's going to be ascended to heaven. So, now what? What would be in store for the disciples? This morning, we want to look at Jesus' parting words. These are not his last words, by any means. But they are close to the last words of Jesus that he gives to his disciples before he leaves them. I mentioned when I was in the book of John, in John chapter 20, that I would come back to these verses about the Holy Spirit. And today I am fulfilling uh, that uh, pledge to you. The theme of this morning's message is Jesus' initial parting words to his disciples. Jesus' initial parting words to his disciples. What does he have to say? How does he prepare them for his departure? First, Jesus pronounces peace to the disciples. Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So, the need for peace. Why did Jesus say, Peace be with you? Well, the first need for peace is, given to us in verse 19, where it tells us that they were in a, a room with the doors shut, actually bolted, trying to make themselves secure because they were afraid of the Jews. Jesus had just been crucified. Their leader had been taken captive by the Roman government. The most 
torturous death that they could concoct had been administered to Jesus, and the disciples are fearful. They're afraid. And Jesus, rather miraculously, appears to them in this room that has been bolted shut because they are afraid of the Jews. This trembling, terrified group, Jesus is going to send out into the world to preach the gospel. So he says to them, peace be with you. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the Jewish leaders. Don't be afraid of the people around you. But be at peace. Secondly, the disciples needed peace because they were afraid of Jesus. If you would put your bulletin or something here and turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. And then, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 24. Then you need to put something there because... All morning I'm going to be skipping back and forth between these two passages. For this is a parallel account. Uh, Another rendering of what took place at this exact time. And uh, so we're going to glean some things from the parallel account. So put something in John 20 and put something in Luke chapter 24. If you look with me at verse 36 of Luke 24. Reading at verse 36. And while they were telling these things, he himself stood in the midst. But they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. If you notice back in John chapter 20. Verses 20 and 21 pick up on the account at that point. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, peace be with you. So there was a second time that Jesus said, peace be with you. There were two motivations. One, because they were afraid of the Jews. Secondly, because they were afraid of Jesus. And they thought they had seen a ghost. Jesus said, I'm no ghost. I am the one who has been crucified. Put your hands here, touch me, see me, realize that indeed it is I that has risen from the dead. But let's look at the source of peace. Before the resurrection, Jesus had spoken to the disciples concerning peace. In John 14, 27, you don't need to turn to these references. But in John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you. In me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. We are to be at peace. The disciples are to be at peace. He said, don't let your heart be troubled. They were troubled. They were troubled. But Jesus said, take courage. Courage, I have overcome the world. We are to find peace in Jesus' triumph. Look at John 20, verse 20. And when he had said this, that is, peace be unto you, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples therefore rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus therefore said to them again, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Be at peace. Why? Because Jesus had overcome the world. Listen to John 16.33 again. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Jesus said, take courage. Don't be afraid. Because I overcome all of the evil and the misery and the heartache of this world. The world gave its best shot at putting Jesus to death. The world did all it could to oppose Jesus Christ. He hung upon a cross. He was spit upon. He was bruised. He was abused. He was dead and placed in a tomb. And Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And so that body that was in the tomb is now out of the tomb. And he triumphed over all evil, all powers, all might, all dominion. And as you unpack that, it refers to the Roman government. He overpowered the Roman government. He overpowered the Jewish leaders. He overpowered Satan and the evil one and his host of, of fallen angelic beings. Jesus conquered all when he rose from the dead. And so when he invited them to touch the nail prints in his hand and the wound in his side, he was encouraging them to think about his triumph. I stand in your midst. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It was FDR, I believe, that said, man has nothing to fear but fear itself. There was no reason for the disciples to be afraid. There was no reason for them to be hunkered down. There was no reason for them to be sitting in a room that was bolted because Jesus had, had, uh, had risen from the dead. We need to realize this morning the wonderful triumph of Jesus Christ. He rules over all things. No one, no thing, no entity can oppose Jesus Christ successfully. It's with that confidence that we're to go into the world. It's with that sense of peace in the understanding of the significance of Christ's resurrection. Secondly, Jesus provides the disciples with the Holy Spirit. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus had promised before the resurrection that the disciples would receive the Holy Spirit after he was glorified. The very same word that's used in our text. John 7.39. But he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. But once Jesus Christ had died and risen again, now it was time for the Holy Spirit to be given. Now it was time for the Holy Spirit to to work in a, a new and glorious way in the life of the disciples and in the life of the church. This receiving, if you will, of the Holy Spirit is different from that which takes place in the book of Acts as the disciples are gathered together in the upper room, when uh, there is a great outpouring of the Spirit of God, and uh, it comes and the Holy Spirit sits upon them as, as tongues of fire, and they're empowered and enabled for the work of God. This is a little different in our text. 
And uh, if you look with me again at Luke 24, where we have a more lengthy account. Luke 24. I'll start reading verse 38 again to give you the context. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still could not believe for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you. That all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth a promise of my my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So, he's talking about this power from on high that's going to come in the future, and they're to stay in the city until that power comes. They're not to immediately go out and start sharing the gospel until this power from on high comes. Acts, Acts, chapters 1 and 2. Acts, Acts 1 and 2. What is taking place here is a down payment, if you will, a beginning of the work of the Holy Spirit. So what is the result, fruit, or benefit of them having received the Holy Spirit according to our text? Well, first, is that the disciples had a new and greater understanding of the Scriptures. Jesus had said in John 16, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and disclose it to you. Again, in John fourteen twenty six, notice the relationship of the Holy Spirit teaching and the peace that results. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things... And bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So the peace that Jesus is imparting is the ability to understand, comprehend, and act upon the scriptures. That he is going to open their mind to understand the truth of God's word. We read repeatedly in the book of John the asides that the disciples did not yet understand what was taking place. They didn't understand that to after the resurrection took place. If you look with me at Luke 24, verse 44. Now these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now verse 25. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That is corresponding to our text where it says he breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. That was the the result. That was the benefit. That was the fruit. That was that their minds were opened to understand the scriptures. The light went on. We don't really understand 
the scriptures until the Spirit of God works in our heart and mind. Uh, We need the Holy Spirit to teach us truth. It's an interesting concept that's given to us in the book of John, chapter 20, where it says that he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. What does that word inspiration mean? A literal translation of the Greek word for inspiration is God breathed. That's why the NIV translates it. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching. The one who breathes the word of God into existence, the one who inspires, the one who imparts the word of God is the very same one who breathes, who imparts the understanding of the word of God. And so now their eyes are opened. And they understand, for the first time, the significance of the many, many things that Jesus did. Now they can put it together. Now they can connect the dots. Now they understood these great sayings and teaching of Jesus because they received the Holy Spirit. Then, in just a matter of days yet future, they're going to be incredibly empowered by the Holy Spirit to go out and share the good news of the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But right now, in our text, the light goes on. They understand. Then thirdly, Jesus prepares the disciples for what is to come next. Namely, they're being sent into the world as witnesses. Look with me at John 20, verse 21. Jesus, therefore, said to them again, Peace be with you. And these words. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Here is a divine, authoritative commissioning of the disciples. We find repeatedly in the word of God that the disciples are sent ones into this world. Uh, If you remember, even in Christ's high priestly prayer in John 17, before his death, he was praying for the disciples. And he said, as the Father has sent me, so send I them. That uh, he was commissioning to go. Another resurrection appearance is Matthew chapter 28. And again, after Jesus had risen from the dead, Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We are sent into the world even as Jesus is sent into the world. I want to unpack that in a moment, 
But before I do, I want to look at this rather curious statement that's given in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, what in the world does that mean? And what powers was he entrusting to the disciples at that moment? What abilities did they or did not possess? Well, again, it's helpful to look at the parallel account. Look at Luke 24, if you're there. Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. He said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So what we find in verse 23 of John 20 is a shorthand of that statement. But having said that, it carries some really powerful thoughts. First, these apostles, disciples, and then down the line, us today, are appointed as divine ambassadors, representing the Lord Jesus Christ. Not as a replacement of his ministry, but a continuation of it. Jesus sends us into this world in a like manner that God the Father sent the Son into, their, into this world. And so we used as a call to worship this morning, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his representatives. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, or in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We are Christ's voice in this world. We are his ambassadors. We are sent out under his authority. We represent him. And as we represent him, we are to beg in his behalf, as though he were present, as though he were talking to you. This morning, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I'm representing him today. Begging you, as he would if he were present, to believe and receive the forgiveness of sins. But not only that, we too are to announce whether or not sins are forgiven or maintained. It is God alone who effectively forgives and retains sin. You and I don't have the power to absolve or remit sin. Nobody on the face of this earth has that kind of power. That belongs unto God alone. But notice what verse 23 says. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, why does he say that? Well, these verses I do want you to turn to. I've got three. The first is 1 John 2.23. First John 2.23 Whoever denies the Son 
does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you don't have any relationship to God the Father. That's in keeping with what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. You can't have a relationship to God the Father without having a relationship to Jesus Christ. Period. Matthew 10, verse 40. If you would turn there. Matthew 10, 40. He who receives you, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. So notice the progression. The one who receives you, receives me, Jesus is speaking. And the one who receives me, Jesus speaking, receives the one who sent me. That's the Father. One other verse, Luke ten sixteen. Luke ten sixteen. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So there, again, there's this, this chain. God sent me, so if they reject my message, they reject God. I send you, so if they reject you, they reject me. Because you're going with my message. God sent Jesus. Therefore, if people reject Jesus, they're rejecting God the Father. Jesus sent us. Therefore, if they're rejecting our message, they are rejecting the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, some practical applications. Number one, it is necessary then that the message that we proclaim is truth. That the message we proclaim is really Jesus' message. We don't get to say anything we want. We don't get to make up our message. We are an ambassador. An ambassador is to represent the government that uh, uh, empowers him. He doesn't get to say whatever he wants. He gets to negotiate in keeping with the laws of Congress and the will of the President. Jesus said to those that found fault with him in John 7.16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus said, My teaching isn't my own. My teaching is the teaching of one who sent me. My teaching is God's teaching. Therefore, if you reject me, you reject God. Matthew 28, verse 20. The Great Commission. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even at the end of age. So we are to go and take the gospel to other people. We're to go and declare the message of Jesus Christ. And as we proclaim the message of Jesus Christ... On his authority, we then have the ability to proclaim the forgiveness of sins or the retention of sins dependent upon what someone does with that gospel message. 
If you place your faith in Jesus Christ this morning, you acknowledge that you're a sinner, you recognize a need for forgiveness, you believe that Jesus Christ died on that cross in order to take away your sins and provide the righteousness that you so badly need, that he died and rose again, and you place your faith and trust in him, I've got the wonderful privilege to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And I also have the grave responsibility to say to you this morning, if you don't believe that message, you are yet in your sins. And you'll die without Christ. You won't experience any forgiveness. And you'll be separated from Him for all eternity. We have the right and the responsibility to declare the forgiveness of sins or the retention of sins. And again, let me tell you what a dreadful responsibility that is. It's one that we shouldn't take lightly. For it is to reflect what actually takes place in heaven. It is to be an exact representation. We are to be accurate. When we say a person's sins are forgiven, their sins are to be forgiven. And when they say they're not, they are not to be forgiven. What we say is to be in keeping with what God says. Practically, for me, when someone prays to receive Christ as their Savior, I don't immediately say to them, your sins are forgiven. You won't hear me use language like somebody was saved today. I'm very guarded in that. You will hear me say, someone made a profession of faith. They've said they believe. How do I know? How do I know? How do I know it was real? How do I know it was genuine? How do I know that it was actually the Spirit of God and not something else that prompted them? Fear or concern or ambition or, or who knows what? I don't know. But that doesn't mean that we cannot know. First John says these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. That you can know. One of the great joys of a pastor is to do the funeral of a committed Christian. When you can stand up front and say with a great deal of assurance, our brother has departed this life and is in the presence of God. And again, I don't say that lightly. I say that to people who I have seen a transformation of life. I have seen the fruit of the Spirit taking place in their lives. I have seen the reality of their faith. And I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt 
But they know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I can see the, the fruit of the Spirit of God in their lives. That's, that's a great joy. Conversely, I don't stand at a funeral service and put anybody in hell. I don't confine someone to an eternal lake of fire because I don't know what's taking place in their heart and life. I don't know if at some point, other than what I would have known, they have repented. I know they need to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I don't just usher everybody into heaven. But what I'm saying to you is I don't put them in hell either. Because that's a pretty grievous thing to say. But I do know this. And we need to say it unflinchingly. If a person stands before me and says, you know, I, I, I've never received Jesus Christ as my Savior. Then they're lost. They're lost. And they're lost as long as they don't come to a place of repentance and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. When I stand at a funeral service, I don't know for sure, for an absolute surety, that someone might have repented at the last moment, even like the thief on the cross, who said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. There are such things as deathbed conversions. But let me also tell you that they're rare. They're rare. We need to be very, very careful who we reassure about their faith and who we condemn. Because I hear people condemn good brothers and sisters in the Lord and it grieves me. Be careful about who you call a heretic. Be careful about who you say is not a part of the body of Christ. We are to represent the mind and will of God. We are to pronounce the forgiveness of sins for those that are forgiven. And we're to pronounce that the, the sins are retained for those upon whom they're retained. You don't get to make it up. You don't get to make your own rules. You don't get to make family members feel happy. You don't get to comfort people that don't deserve comfort. And worse yet, you don't remove the warning. From them, for those that should tremble and quake. The great message of this passage is Jesus coming to his disciples and twice saying unto them, Peace be unto you. Peace be unto you. There are people on the face of this earth that peace doesn't belong to them. That they should live in fear and trepidation and anguish and uncertainty until they come to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That may sound harsh. It's not intended to be. You see, because we have the joy of taking that message to all the world and anyone who wants to act upon it can. That's the message we take. And if they fail to act upon it, they're lost.
So, in the same manner that Jesus was sent out into this world, so too we are sent into this world. In John 3, 16, probably know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The primary purpose of Jesus coming to this earth was not to condemn, it was to save. It was not to judge, it was not to set right. You realize that when Jesus died, all injustice was not removed. All misery had not been taken away. All poverty had not been resolved. Not every physical ailment was abolished. Jesus didn't come to do that. He came to save. He came to save. We need to realize that our primary purpose in life is to save. Not to condemn. Somehow, we kind of feel like it's our responsibility to stand up and rant and rave against every evil and injustice in this world. But that's not really what's to characterize us. It's not trying to put right every wrong. It's about reaching a people with the good news that their wrongs can be forgiven. And that one day, all the evils in this world will be set right when Jesus Christ returns. We're sent not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And then thirdly, in the same manner that Jesus was sent into the world, we too are sent into the world. Listen to Jesus' words in the high priestly prayer. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the world. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. The very same words. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so I have sent them into the world. We are to mimic. We are to incarnate. Many have suggested the gospel. We are to live out the gospel. And the gospel is that God sent his son into this world. In order that people would be saved. Jesus ends his earthly ministry by telling his disciples, I'm sending you into this world. You are sitting in this, this room with the door locked. I'm sending you into that world that I was sent into. To take the gospel to all people. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. There has been a lot written lately about the missional church, missional theology. Boiling that down into a nutshell is there's always been a recognition in foreign missions that we need to send people. We need to send people. You need to go. Okay? And so we're sending people to Lower Jabit. We're sending people to unreached people groups. 
You know, we, we are sending people, you know, to, to Tanzania. We're sending people to where the word of God has not yet come, where the gospel has not yet been reached, and we go. But somehow, somehow, from about 1940 on, in modern evangelicalism, the church lost that model. And the church adopted an attractional model rather than a go-ye model. In other words, try to bring people in to the church to get saved. Have a, a service and bring them in in order to, to hear the gospel. Invite them to come in. Invite them. Bring them in. Jesus went out into the highways and byways. Jesus went from city to city. Jesus didn't camp out in the temple and say, anybody who wants to hear, come on in. Set up posters. Jesus at the temple. Go hear him tonight. To his disciples. Go and gather as many people as you can and bring them to the temple to hear me. That's not what Jesus did. He went. He went. Jesus has authorized us, empowered us, and commissioned us to go into this world. That has ramifications for us, locally and worldwide. When you leave here, you are to think of yourself as going into the world. When you go to work, you're to think of yourself as going into the world. When you go off to school, you're to think of yourself as going into the world. Wherever it is that you are going, realize that as you go, you're to be taking the gospel with you. You're to be telling people about Jesus Christ. You are to be providing for them the forgiveness of sins or the retaining of sins. But we are to be ministering to a lost world. Going out. Not just sending people overseas. But you and me going out. When we're at Turkey Hill. When we're at restaurants. When we're at McDonald's. When we're at the gas station. When we're at work. Wherever we find ourselves. We're supposed to be taking this gospel and not sitting behind locked doors trying to keep the world out in fear. But go into this world and as we go, go with a sense of peace. Peace. Is it a scary thing? It can be. But be of good courage. I have overcome the world. The worst that they can do to us, the worst that they can do to us is kill us. Do you realize that? That's the very worst they can do. They can kill you. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who is able to destroy in hell. The worst they can do to us is kill us. The worst they can do to Jesus 
they did. They killed them. And the disciples were scared. And they sat in a room that was locked and said, now what? Jesus came and said, touch the nail prints in my hand. See that it is I. Touch the wound in my side. And be not fearing, but believing. Be at peace, for I have overcome the world. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if the very worst that the world could do to you happened, and they take your life, at the very moment that your physical life is, sna- is, is uh, snapped out, that physical life is snuffed out, that very moment you're going to be in the presence of God. And that body that they may have shot or hung is going to rise from the dead. And you are going to be in your physical body and with Jesus forever and ever. Because he is overcome. Be at peace. Be at peace. Are you anxious this morning about an operation? It may be terminal. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and life couldn't be more wonderful. You got it made. Nobody's hassling you. No persecutions. You just went to the doctor and you got a great checkup and, and all is well. I may sound like gloom and doom this morning, but let me just say to you, at some point you're going to die. Do you realize that? At some point you are going to die. At some point I am going to die. I don't know when, I don't know how long, I don't know under what circumstances, but someday you are going to die and I'm going to die. Maybe it will be for a worthwhile purpose. And maybe it will seem as though there was no rationale or reason for it whatsoever. How much better to die for the faith than for something that is superfluous. But the point is, we're all going to die. And when we do, either we are in the presence of God or we're experiencing torment forever. This morning, you can be at peace about operations, about the end of your life, about everything. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because I can say to you this morning without a shadow of a doubt, because your sins can be forgiven. And if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, I say to you, you've got every reason to be afraid. Because your worst nightmare lies ahead. The very purpose of the book of John is given to us in the next chapter. It says, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you would have life through his name.
I hope as a result of this study, you are convinced that you have life through his name. And I beg you, I really do, on the behalf of the one who died so that your sins can be forgiven, as though Jesus were standing here himself, I beg of you, receive the forgiveness of sins by believing in him. And if you do, they are forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray for any who are gathered here today that may not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. I pray that you would do a work by your Spirit and illumine their hearts and minds. I say to you as a congregation, if there's anyone here this morning who has never received Jesus Christ as their Savior, but wants their sins to be forgiven and to enjoy peace with God, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you anything publicly, but we just, would you raise your hand this morning to say, I want my sins to be forgiven and to experience that peace with God. Quickly, would you raise your hand just so I can see that, pray for you privately. Yes, anyone? Raise your hand quickly. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, and I trust that you would help us to go out. We look for that empowerment, that enablement of your spirit. I thank you that you have opened our hearts and minds to understand the truth. And Lord, help us not to just hunker down and be behind closed doors that are locked. But may we go out into this world, into the very places where we are going to encounter non-Christians. And may we give them the good news that their sins can be forgiven. And Lord, guard us. Guard us from reassuring anyone who doesn't or shouldn't be reassured. And guard our spirit that we're not out to condemn but we're out to proclaim forgiveness. Help us as we seek to be your representatives in this world. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's close.